Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. We have a jam-packed program for you today, and we want you to stay tuned because our broadcast partners are standing by wanting to give us information, details behind the headlines in this world that seem to be unfolding even as we go on the air. For example, Colonel Bob McGinnis is in Washington. David Dolan reporting the Middle East news update, serving there for many years in Jerusalem. Rob Congdon, a look at the European Union. Dr. John Whitcomb is going to deal with whether Jesus Christ had a wife or not. Steve Herzig and Rabbi Yoel Karen talking about Yom Kippur. In fact, the rabbi goes in-depth with a Jewish perspective on Yom Kippur. That's all ahead here on Prophecy Today. We're going to continue right here on Prophecy Today, now going to our broadcast partners all across the world to get information from them, details behind the headlines we're reading or hearing from the news-gathering organizations of this world, helping us to better understand how political activities are setting the stage for prophetic events, prophetic events uh, that are going to be unfolding seemingly in the very near future. We catch Colonel Bob McGinnis on the run. Uh, He is uh, many times available for us at different locations around the world. We've talked to him uh, in the foreign lands as he's covered a certain detailed things that are happening in that part of the world at that time. Uh, But we catch him on the run right now. You may hear some traffic noise in the background, but we thought it important enough to get Bob to talk to us about some of these events. Bob, uh, let me talk to you. You're in the Washington, D.C. area. There's been somewhat of a walk back by the White House on the Benghazi attack on the consulate there, the killing of the U.S. ambassador to Libya and three others of his staff. Uh, Talk to me a few moments. What are your thoughts? Now, you are a strategic planner. You watch all of these things unfold. What are your thoughts about uh, the White House walking back on this and not admitting at the very outset it was a terrorist attack? Well, I said last week on Fox News it was a terrorist attack, and I stand by that. Uh, You know, we've known that Benghazi has been a a clearinghouse for al-Qaeda and jihadists that has been fighting American forces in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we've acknowledged that over the years. And the fact that on 9-11, you had a violent encounter at a consulate there in Benghazi should not surprise anyone, much less the Obama administration. So, you know, the administration, I think, uh, is trying to paint a, a pretty play, uh, face on this Arab Spring uh, fiasco, but it keeps getting worse by the day. And, and what happened in Benghazi, what happened in Cairo, what's happening in Tunisia and elsewhere uh, should not surprise anyone. And, in fact, uh, uh, just the other day on Capitol Hill in the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, the counterterrorism uh, spokesman director uh, basically confirmed what I just said. Well, when we think about this Benghazi thing, are you uh, pretty much absolute that you feel like from the very outset it was planned to be a terrorist attack and this uh, so-called film denigrating Islam had really nothing to do with it? They, in fact, didn't even necessarily have a demonstration there at the consulate in Benghazi, did they? It was uh, a consulate, and it was a ruse uh, as basically to distract attention and to allow them to execute this takedown that they did. Uh, they had been observing that for days, it appears, and of course they had some sort of intelligence uh, insight uh, beforehand. So, hey, I, I, I've completely rejected from the very outset that this, this was 
anything other than a Al Qaeda-inspired takedown. That uh, you know, the, the film is a great excuse. Uh, it's being used in a variety of Islamic countries, but it's nothing more than an excuse for people that are down and out, hate the U.S., hate Israel, uh, want to use this as an excuse to you know, strike back at us and anyone else they can. Bob, is this evidence that al-Qaeda and the jihadists are getting stronger? Well, I don't know if they're getting stronger. They certainly are, are not dead, uh, and they'll continue to be a serious problem. As, you know, as the you know, counterterrorism people said uh, the other day in the Senate, uh, you know, whether it's al-Qaeda in the wild areas of western Pakistan or al-Qaeda in Yemen or the Horn of Africa or even in Boko Haram, uh, in Nigeria, wherever they are, uh, they franchise, they've morphed into something that is going to take decades uh, to conquer, if ever. I think I hear you saying this is only tip of the iceberg. In other words, do you believe there's more of this to come and more intense? Well, there's no question it's going to continue. Uh, the question is the mechanisms that they acquire, whether you know, it's deadly weapons of mass destruction, or it's RPGs like they used in Benghazi, or uh, it's, you know, through some sort of IED, you know, that they've consistently used against us in places like Afghan and Iraq. It will continue. Uh, I just hope it doesn't get any worse than it has been. Let's uh, change the focus just a bit. Iran is in the mindset of both the United States especially Israel, and also now even in the European Union. And I read a dispatch coming out of Europe uh, that uh, time is running out for diplomacy uh, with the United States and the European Union as it relates to Iran. Would you probably agree with that assessment? Well, yeah. You know, the red lines, I think, have been crossed. Uh, They have enriched uranium, uh, and, of course, they have uh, plutonium they're making at the ADAC reactor. So, you know, they have that. They have all the technical pieces for a weapon. They've had, they started two years ago putting together their weapons program again uh, in, a, in a semi-official way there in Tehran. So all the pieces are there. The Israelis know that. We know that. Uh, and, in fact, I think some of the clandestine operations, the assassinations of the Iranian uh, scientists, uh, certainly the cyber attacks, uh, certainly even the electrical problem they had here recently at some of these uranium enrichment plants are all indicative of a cold, somewhat hot war that is taking place. And, of course, the demonstration we have in the Gulf with anti-mining activities and law problems, you know, it's, it's just indicative of an ongoing war uh, that the Iranians, I think, have every intention of having a weapon. Uh, and, of course, they want to keep most of that secret because they think maybe at some point Either Israel and or the United States might do something. Uh, you're talking about mining the Persian Gulf area, especially the Strait of Hormuz there. Is that why the military buildup is taking place out there in that part of the world? Well, they have 30 nations in a coalition of uh, exercise that continues until next week. Now, we know that the Iranians have a lot of mines, thousands of them. They, some are you know, rather primitive. Some are fairly sophisticated. They got from the Russians. And so we have to be prepared in the event that they decide to employ these to somehow, you know, keep the Straits of Hormuz open, through which, you know, arguably 25% of the seaborne oil must pass every day. Talk to me about an analysis by one analyst who said that Iran is behind all 
international terror activity, and they may well be on the way to the United States. Is that a viable possibility? Well, they're certainly behind Hezbollah. They're certainly behind the Quds Force, and the Quds Force is in Syria, and the Quds Force was behind the Mexican cartel uh, syndicate issues here in Washington uh, a year ago when they tried to assassinate the Saudi ambassador. We've, we've publicly stated that. Uh, I don't know that they're directly behind a lot of these franchised al-Qaeda groups, but they certainly are cheering uh, from behind the scenes. They, yeah, they're behind a lot of terrorism, uh, but I wouldn't say all. Let's focus just a moment on Syria. Reports coming out of that region that President Assad, Bashar Assad, may be ready and willing to use chemical weapons on the Syrian people. Would you think that he might do that as a desperate attempt to stay in power? Well, I think that he wants to stay in power. That's his primary objective, even though he's killed more than 20,000 people. Uh, and, of course, you know, if you believe the major general that defected a couple months ago, he said very clearly that you know, he and others are discussing you know, the alternatives, and chemical use came up, and they talked about specific protocols that they would follow, and then, of course, you know, whether or not they should arm uh, certain missiles and rockets and give that to Hezbollah as well. So you have, I think, you know, that's the sort of uh, strategic thinking uh, that you try to present to your commander-in-chief. And in that particular scenario, if survival of the regime is, is the out, really the objective and it's threatened, then you use whatever means you have to survive, and that's one of those means. And indeed, those same chemical weapons that he may train on the Syrian people could get also into the hands of the terror organization Hezbollah, which is a surrogate for Iran and in partnership with Syria. Well, of course, Iran has all sorts of things invested. They want to keep Assad in place because he provides them the mechanism to reach to the Mediterranean and to control uh, southern Lebanon. Uh, we know that the commander of the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Quds Force uh, said that, look, yeah, we've been, you know, training militia inside Syria to defend that regime. Uh, they, they've been working for years, uh, doing a variety of things. Of course, they are the ones that primarily train and equip Hezbollah, and Hezbollah today has many, many thousands of well-placed, well-positioned rockets facing northern Israel. Uh, so you know, Iran's not going to back down. And unfortunately, in the void created by the disorganization of the West and in many of our Arab allies in the region, you know, failing to do anything about Syria, Iran moved in along with Russia and some other outside helpers to really help that regime to survive. And will they survive? It's hard to know. Uh, certainly it's back and forth. Uh, but I suspect uh, if you know, the viciousness that we've seen up to this point uh, is probably just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how willing Bashir Assad is to kill as many people as necessary to stay in power. And he will. Colonel Bob McGinnis, he's on the road. He's there in Washington, D.C. You could hear the noise in the background, but we needed to talk to him about these geopolitical activities. Bob, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks, Bob. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a Middle East news update with David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today.
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. I want to tell you this weekend we are in Normal, Illinois. Yes, finally, I'm normal, or I am in normal. We'll be at the Calvary Baptist Church with Dr. Ralph Wingett. Ralph and uh, some of his people went to Israel with us uh, about a year and a half ago. We had a great time together. Looking forward to renewing our fellowship when we get together there at Calvary Baptist Church. It's one of my favorite places to go and preach. And listen, my dear friend, if you're listening to this broadcast on WPEO in Peoria, Illinois, Bob Bullrich and all the gang from WPEO are going to be a part of us this weekend when we get together, have some fellowship uh, outside of the church activities. Uh, But if you come over, I'm sure you'll see some of the WPEO gang helping Judy as she gives you an opportunity to get some of our materials. That's at Calvary Baptist Church. We'll be there all day Sunday, a one-day prophecy conference, 9, 30, 11, then at 5 o'clock, prophecy Q&A, 6 o'clock, the last service. Come over and join us. Uh, It's Calvary Baptist Church on School Street in Normal, Illinois. Well, let's get back to our broadcast partners. We want to talk with David Dolan, a man who has been a journalist for over 30 years in the Middle East. He, from his vantage point, has been able to watch everything that's happening there, does bring great insight to the table. And David, let's talk about, if you will, with me, uh, the Middle Eastern Muslim violence that's continuing in different locations, jumps up here, jumps up there. The Israelis have to be concerned about this, are they not? Oh, uh, very much. Uh, But, you know, Jimmy, it just um, is the latest chapter in what is a pretty big book by now of um, concerns that Israel has over developments over the last few years 
uh, in the region. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that many Israeli leaders feared that our going into Iraq would make us more reluctant in the end to deal with Iran, a, a greater problem. Um, and that seems to be happening. And now, of course, we've had the overthrow of the Mubarak government and uh, Gaddafi in Libya, all these things happening. So the fact that now anti-American protests are spreading is, is not all that surprising to the Israelis, but it is discouraging to them. And, of course, they worry that um, this will lead to the ousting of more uh, pro-Western uh, Muslim governments, such as in Qatar, uh, Kuwait, uh, those sorts of maybe even Saudi Arabia, uh, to be replaced by more Muslim fundamentalist governments, and they see that process happening in Syria as well. So all of this is very worrisome to the Israelis. And again, another uh, surprising sign to many commentators this week who've been saying, gosh, they really believed to President Obama when he vowed before the last election that he would vastly improve ties between the United States and the Muslim world, citing his own background, the fact that his father was a Muslim, and and, uh, you know, that he knows the Koran and these different factors. And so in, instead, it seems to be going the other way uh, with anti-Americanism growing uh, throughout the Muslim world. And not just, of course, the Middle East. We're seeing demonstrations today uh, or yesterday, uh, I should say, in Malaysia and Indonesia and Australia, in Europe and Central Africa now, Uganda, Nigeria, many places. So it's spreading and it's uh, very concerning to the Israelis. They've had some smaller demonstrations in Tel Aviv in front of the American embassy there, some in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount as well. But I think uh, the focus probably of Israel, as it relates to this violence that's spreading across the Middle East, has to be what's going on in Syria. And I don't think, I don't hear any reports of them demonstrating against this so-called video that uh, denigrates Islamic faith. Uh, but uh, the Syrians uh, are, are really something to be concerned about. And was that probably the reason for this surprise military exercise there in the Golan Heights this week? Well, that would be, um, it, it was a surprise and a very unusual uh, drill, Jimmy, in that um, uh, the men in their units were called up to head up north to the Golan right now uh, as if an attack were actually underway. We haven't had that sort of a unannounced surprise uh, drill held on the Golan for some years. So it was a, a, quite a dramatic thing, and uh, and the guys showed up, I have to say. The, the reserve forces in Israel are are pretty strong. They pay close attention to what's going on, the, the, the men and women that are in the reserves, and yet they, did, they had no inkling that this was going to happen. Certainly it, it is a sign that the fears that the war in Syria will spread uh, that maybe uh, northern Israel's Arabs might uh, get drawn in. We're hearing greater and m more uh, confirmed reports that Libyans, Egyptians, Iraqis, uh, Kuwaitis, Qataris, other Arab Muslims, Sunni Arab Muslims, are uh, flooding into Syria to support the anti-Assad uh, regime forces, while Iran has stepped up its air corridor over northeast uh, Iraq, uh, bringing in uh, Iranian uh, revolutionary guards to fight on the ground, uh, joining in with Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon. So this is becoming much more than a civil war. It's becoming a regional Sunni-Shiite uh, conflict, and uh, you know it could easily involve Israel, especially with uh, Hezbollah uh, renewing its threats, Nasrallah, this week, that he would attack Israel if it attacked uh, anything in Iran. So 
So it's a very tense situation, and um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, much more than that. Video is behind all this, and uh, at the same time, serious chemical weapons of mass destruction. Assad seems to have them on the move. He made a statement this week. He will use chemical weapons against his own people, the Syrians. He had already made the statement that he would use these chemical weapons of mass destruction against the enemies, and of course, Israel would have to be considered an enemy of Bashar Assad there in Syria. Now, this is uh, not very exciting. Well, no, and and it's uh, it's actually more than just th- those words, which are dramatic enough. But we we have um, reports not fully confirmed, but they seem to be reliable that that the um, regime actually test fired some of those chemical warheads that they have, both field um, uh, chemical uh, warheads that can be fitted on on short range uh, rockets, even. Uh, even um, shoulder-fired uh, missiles could carry them to the ballistic missiles that we know they have. And this test supposedly took place at a, uh, a chemical facility that uh, Syria is known to have just east of the city of Aleppo, where all this, uh, where, which has been one of the worst uh, centers of fighting in the past couple months. So very dramatic and very, very worrisome indeed. What about the prime minister's scheduled speech at the United Nations? Looks like he's going to use it as an opportunity to warn world leaders about the threat of of Iran, and Iran still has to be the number one threat to Israel. Indeed, and, you know, he's been saying more clearly and more consistently over the past year that the time has come uh, to deal with this issue, that it, it does have, in other words, a time frame, because as we've been talking about for months, the Iranians continue to move these uranium enrichment centrifuges, which are the key component in building nuclear weapons, to this underground hardened bunker uh, near the holy city of Qom. And uh, once they've got that operation completed, then it will be very difficult for Israel to strike that uh, those facilities effectively and effectively destroy that process. Uh, he may just get up there and say, folks, we're down to the wire. This is the moment of truth. You're either with us or you're against us, uh, you know, warning, in other words, that this is an imminent uh, probability. And that, that is the way it seems in Israel with people talking about this fall being the time when some action is expected. Well, you mentioned when he says to the folks what's really the bottom line, you're either with us or against us. Looks like the Obama administration is not with Israel. Obama's still refusing to meet with the prime minister of Israel. Yes, and that, of course, sends a, a strong signal to Israel's enemies that um, that there may not be U.S. support, active U.S. support in any war for Israel, and that that, of course, only would only encourage uh, Hezbollah, for instance, to take the first strike at Israel. And this is what they're concerned about, and that drill that we just t- talked about up north is related to that, probably. Talk about uh, the high alert uh, security-wise for the days, the awesome days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I would imagine all of Israel is on high alert for that. It, it, it is, Jimmy, but ironically, this is the first uh, holiday season in many years that a closure, a total closure, was not imposed by the army on the West Bank, on Judea and Samaria, on the Arab towns and villages in that uh, zone. The Palestinians uh, can uh, still come to their jobs inside of Israel proper. During the holidays, that usually is not the case. They can travel pretty freely on all of the roads. Uh, that's usually restricted during the holidays. Uh, some of the settlers have been very critical uh, that this wasn't imposed, 
But Ehud Barak, the defense minister, said he just wanted to, you know, keep life as easy as possible for the Palestinians right now, apparently fearing that this, uh, these violent protests happening elsewhere could spread to um, uh, the Palestinian towns. As you said, we've had a few uh, demonstrations, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, but they were nonviolent for the most part, and they're concerned about that apparently and hoping that uh, not imposing these measures might encourage calm, but, uh, you know, it's a hope and not a guarantee. David Dolan with our Middle East News update right here on Prophecy Today, helping us to understand those events unfolding at the time we are talking about them. And this is very good information. David, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more ahead right here on Prophecy Today. I'll be talking with Dr. Rob Congdon. He has a European Union update for us here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Going to continue with our broadcast partners in just a moment. I will be talking with Dr. John Whitcomb, and he's going to respond to the accusation that Jesus Christ had a wife. This is a very important interview. You do not want to miss it. All of our interviews are available at prophecytoday.com. PTRN, that will assist you in understanding the details behind all of the headlines. Hey, when you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, look at the information about our Israel tour. We still have a few seats possible. Maybe you can come along and go with us in October. And then we're going to take a cruise at the end of October. We're going to Rome. We're going to be in Ephesus. We'll be in Athens. It'll be a great time. Love to have you come along and go with us. Right now, we continue conversations with the broadcast partners that come to the table with information so needed as we look at world events. Everyone has a world view. That's how you look at events happening across the world and try to come to some reason in your mind why these things are happening. Well, God's Word, God's prophetic Word, helps you to develop the proper worldview, and our broadcast partners come and assist us in that as well. Dr. Rob Congdon, as we get underway with these conversations with some of our partners, uh, will bring to the table information about the European Union and the continent of Europe and how that all plays into an end-time scenario that is unfolding in our world. Rob, thank you for being available. I, I understand that you're taking off for Maryland uh, soon after the broadcast is over. You've got uh, a four-day conference up there. Where is that going to be located? 
Uh, that's right. We'll be at uh, Middletown, Maryland, at the Locust Valley Baptist Church, and I'm going to be speaking on the thrones of God throughout history, both looking at the past and the future, and the position of the thrones of God. We'll picture them for everybody, or try to, from the scriptures. Oh, that sounds like a great study. Wish I was uh, going to be able to be there, but I'll be out in Illinois in normal Illinois. It'll be the first time I'm normal. But anyway, uh, we're so happy that uh, you're going to be in ministry. And if you folks listening in that region of the world, get over there to hear Rob teach. It'll be a blessing to you. Let's get now into some of the events that are unfolding. For the last week, week and a half, we have been talking about the violence that has spread throughout the entire Middle East, basically radical Islamist attacking American embassies across the way. They attacked the consulate there in Benghazi, Libya, killed the ambassador and three others. Now there is a French magazine that has, and by the way, these activities of violence throughout the Middle East on American embassies supposedly was motivated because of some video production, a very bad production, by the way, uh, depicting derogatorily Mohammed and Islam. But there is a newspaper in France that has published cartoons and somewhat of a parody on what has been going on in the Middle East. But uh, the French embassies have uh, been put on alert. I think many of them have been shut down in light of that. Talk to me about that, what's going on. Well, yes, uh, there's been a um, French satirical magazine. They're publishing these cartoons on the Prophet Muhammad. What they're trying to do, and in reading what they've said and what many people have observed, it's really creating a debate. And the debate is the freedom of the press versus the danger that it puts citizens in other countries uh, as a result of it. And so uh, the French have proceeded. They've been publishing several articles in the last couple of weeks that have stirred controversy and have upset not only individuals, but entire groups of people. So this is, in some ways, it, it fits the character of the magazine. Uh, they like to be satirical, but it also is a testing of how much freedom they have in France itself to express their views. And so the question is, will it cause trouble? And that's why the embassies have been closed in 20 countries. French embassies have closed. They don't want what they believe is a repeat of what happened over in Libya. Uh, key point, Europeans believe the entire cause of the problem in the Middle East was this video, rather than there be some kind of a terrorist attack against the U.S. So that's driving a lot of what's happening both in France and Europe. Going to another focus on what we're going to be talking with Rob about, I'm going to bring in Catherine Ashton. She is, Catherine Ashton is the Chief of Foreign Policy for the European Union. I understand she had a meeting, I think it was in Turkey, I'm not exactly sure where it was, maybe you can correct me, uh, where the Iranians uh, came to the table. Those who are in charge of negotiating over the nuclear situation there in Iran came to the table with Catherine Ashton, and they discussed some issues. Uh, this is leaving out the United States, uh, Russia, and China, and uh, the United Nations, and uh, she somewhat tried to take this bull by the horn. Was she successful? Uh, what, what came out of that? Well, actually, nothing has visibly come out of it. You're right, it was in Istanbul, in Turkey. 
she met with Iran's chief nuclear negotiator, and uh, I think what she was trying to say is that if they want to talk about uh, the whole situation and have it represented properly in the U.N., remember next week is a big series of meetings at the United Nations, that he should talk to her. They've talked. Uh, nothing was really announced what came out of it. It was sort of a preliminary meeting to prepare for uh, next week's United Nations series of meetings. Uh, for Catherine Ashton, it was an opportunity to say, look, the EU is critical to this whole situation of the Iranian uh, nuclear plans, and therefore she's representing it, and she's trying to show herself an equivalent, if you will, to to Hillary Clinton for the U.S., representing the U.S. So um, this was really to show her power and her influence. Well, and at the same time, there's a group of European Union foreign ministers who are calling uh, for a stronger European Union foreign policy chief. I don't know if they want to replace her or what's the deal. Well, that's quite a significant story. It's one of those type of stories that sits way in the background, yet it's significant. They are calling for a stronger position of the policy chief of the EU to have more power uh, and less power for the individual European Union countries. What What is almost unnoticed in this entire recommendation is the fact that they want this foreign policy chief, who currently is Catherine Ashton, to really be in charge of dealing with, and this is what's important, the neighborhood and other policies. The neighborhood is what the European Union calls the countries that are neighboring the European Union. These include the Middle East, Africa, the Balkans. Um, they're basically saying they want this position so powerful that it affects the policies ultimately over to those countries. And those countries, as we've always brought out before, match up exactly the former Roman Empire at its greatest extent. So it, it really is suggesting a major, major power change to this office and giving it much greater powers and, and actually beyond just the EU. Well, now, is it not uh, reasonable that if these policies go into practice like uh, these ministers are talking about, it somewhat puts them out of a power position or even a job maybe? Well, yes, although um, many of the ministers, the foreign ministers calling for the position, are already involved with the commission and have power there. So it really isn't sort of giving up their power as much as saying where we think we need to head. Uh, they, they published this whole uh, plan, if you will, in what was called the Future of Europe uh, this last Tuesday after a meeting in Warsaw. So you really have the people who want to see the future go a certain way and who obviously expect to be the powers in that future. They're the ones proposing this. They're the ones that want it. And so, uh, no, they're not giving up any power. They just want to lay the, lay the path that they will eventually take the route on. Now, go back and rehearse for me and those eavesdropping on the conversation what you said about it will be the original boundaries are the same as the old Roman Empire. Repeat that one more time for me. Well, if you look at the Roman Empire at its greatest, that was in 117 A.D., you'll find that it basically was European countries and followed all the way around the Mediterranean, the North African states, the Middle Eastern states, uh, the Balkan states, and Europe. And uh, 
with if you take the 27 states of the European Union that are currently members of the European Union and you add what they call their neighborhood policy countries. These are countries that's kind of a preliminary step toward ultimately becoming part of the EU. Those countries include the Balkans, the Middle East, and Northern Africa, the same countries. So when you combine the European Union with this other group of countries, which they have very close relationships to, those are the same countries that were way back in AD 117, the Roman Empire. And, of course, to students of prophecy, that, that alerts us and our ears perk up. Boy, that does indeed set the stage for... Bible prophecy, i.e. Daniel chapter 7, uh, to be fulfilled, does it not? Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's quite exciting. I'm working on a study even now of the empires through history, and as I've said before, I think you can show that in reality it's been an ongoing movement of empires that have all been interconnected, so this would be almost another step and one we would expect from the Scriptures and perhaps the times we live in. I told you, we cannot have a conversation with Dr. Rob Congdon without coming to the conclusion what we see unfolding, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Dr. Rob Congdon reporting to us what's happening in the European Union, significant political activities, setting the stage for the prophetic events in the future. Rob, thank you so much. Have a journey's mercies to your meeting. Have a great meeting. We'll talk again next week. You too. Lord bless. Rob Congdon always brings information to the table that we need to understand in particular as we focus on the European Union, the continent of Europe, and see how all that they are doing politically is basically setting the stage prophetically for what's going to happen in the end time. Rob's a good man, and we so appreciate him assisting us in our broadcasting activities. A man who comes along not always every single week, but regularly, is Dr. John Whitcomb. Dr. Whitcomb, he uh, was a professor. He has traveled in conference ministry. He is an author of great books. The Genesis Flood, for example, is one of his books. It's a classic on the Genesis Flood. But uh, we always like to ask him the tough questions when we come to a time we want to talk about theological issues. We bring Dr. Whitcomb to the table. Dr. John, thank you for being available, sir. Thank you, Jimmy. It's a joy and privilege to be with you again. Thank you. We we, uh, have been noticing in the paper, in the magazines, on the Internet this week, Uh, that there has been a discovery. There is a statement in a small piece of papyrus uh, which says Jesus refers to his wife. Now, as I understand it, this uh, comes out of the Coptic writings out of Egypt and probably in the times of the Gnostics. A couple of things. Uh, Let me just get your first reaction. You've uh, read the articles. You've seen what they're talking about. But in light of what you know right now, what are your thoughts? Is this an authentic uh, piece of a script of some type on this papyrus uh, that we should pay attention to? Uh, Jimmy, I think the papyrus is absolutely worthless in terms of any insights about the Lord Jesus Christ or anything whatsoever about the Bible or Christianity. In fact, uh, one expert in the Coptic uh, language, a linguist, said thousands, and I quote, in thousands of scraps of papyrus where you find crazy things, end of quote. Now, friends, we have to listen. Listen carefully now. 
two or three hundred years after the New Testament was finished. We have all these little papyri and documents about what somebody thought about this, and the Gnostics were a cult that did not believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus. They had strange ideas, esoteric impressions from above, and so, so forth, like many cults today. But you see, the New Testament is absolutely clear, Jimmy. Jesus did not have a human wife. In fact, Paul the Apostle said he didn't. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, Do we, Barnabas and I, not have a right to take along a believing wife? Now listen, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, why didn't he say, and Jesus? Well, that settles it. Jesus wasn't married. But wait a minute. Listen to the good news. He will be married someday. Really? You say, what do you mean, sir? Listen to Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I am jealous, Paul said, for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. You say, really? The church there had a husband? Yet, yeah, listen, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And so, friends, the New Testament goes on to tell us, especially in chapter 5 of Ephesians, listen to this one. Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians chapter 5, 25. How do we love our wives? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself, now listen, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and blameless. You see, so the, the Lord Jesus, friends, is looking forward to that great event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so you read in Revelation, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this, Revelation chapter 19, let's rejoice and be glad, verse 7, and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's every born-again Christian will be part of that bride. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, Jimmy, we just say, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to tell people, perhaps they weren't familiar with the fact, that Jesus was not married on earth. He approved marriage. He created marriage. He attended a marriage ceremony, in fact, endorsed it, blessed the occasion, you remember, in John chapter 2, and tells us what marriage is for, how binding and permanent it is, man and woman, one flesh, as long as they live. And I say, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to think of what's coming. Jesus Christ, the Lord, will be married someday to what? The body, the bride of Christ, which is the true church of born-again Christians since the day of Pentecost till this very till the very hour of resurrection and rapture. Yeah, wow. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, that is good. You've given us the biblical basis to be able to respond to anybody who may come forth with some type of a theory that Jesus Christ had a wife. Uh, let me just uh, take a few more moments with you, though, if you will, Dr. John, 
and, and talk to me a bit more about the Gnostics. I know we go to the Word of God, and that's I love. That's what I love about you. You really just let's go to the Word of God and forget what everybody else is saying. You do that basically in the Genesis flood, etc. You use God's Word as the absolute authority, and we have that authority right now in place on this conversation. But tell me a little bit more about the Gnostics. You mentioned some pretty big words there. Can you? <laughs> I, yeah, toward the end of the first century, when the Apostle John was in exile, you remember on the island of Patmos? Yes. Uh, he made it very clear in his first epistle that the Gnostic idea that Jesus never, you know, the Son of God never did take upon himself a genuine human body. Now, that is hard for us all to imagine. Uh-huh. How could the Son of God from all eternity add a human nature, including a human body, to his divine nature, so he has, he's one person with two natures. Well, the Gnostics came along and said, well, that isn't true. Uh, he, he really just sort of uh, adopted some man at the time of the baptism, and somebody else uh, died, and uh, he, the Christ, who was not a human being, departed from this man, and heresies like that were spreading. So listen to what John says in his first letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, seen, beheld, and listen, hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We have seen and heard, and I say, thank you, Lord. John was there. He touched, he handled the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. So you see, John goes on to tell us, over in chapter 4, don't believe every spirit that comes along, many false prophets, and you must be what? You must believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is a genuine human being forever, without sin, of course. And I say, no, no, amazing that John would emphasize this over and over again. Yet he knew by the Holy Spirit all kinds of heresies that would come along that would deny his genuine incarnation. And I say thank you, Lord, for this reminder that even today, with these rumors, Gnosticism in various forms, as people who claim special knowledge, must be tested, evaluated, and examined and measured by the written, infallible, inerrant Word of God, the Bible. So then you're saying the Gnostics were actually heretics and, and most likely non-believers, really. If Correct. They... Right. And Isn't that, that sad? Yes, it is sad. And is that not a philosophy that permeates this world? We don't call them necessarily Gnostics today, do we? No, there are all kinds of false views about Jesus that are taught, for example, by the Jehovah's Witnesses and, of course, the Mormons and other groups around the world. That uh, I mean, even, even the Koran you know, says nice things about Jesus. I mean, they say he's born of a virgin, believe it or not. Jesus of Nazareth, but they do not say he died on the cross for our sins. That's the crucial point. And may I say it this way, Jimmy, cautiously, carefully, lovingly. Satan does everything possible using, manipulating our unregenerate heart and soul. Wow. Manipulate and distort God's word. Thank you, dear Jesus, for coming by the Holy Spirit to give us your word of truth. You know, I think back to the Olivet Discourse while you were answering the question, I thought what Jesus said there on the Mount of Olives a couple of days before he would be crucified, Matthew chapter 24. They asked, the disciples did, can you give us a sign of your coming? And that's referring, I do believe, to the second coming of Christ. In verse 4, 
he said deception. Verse 5, deception. Verse 11, deception. Verse 24, deception. And what we saw happening as you look back in history, and then maybe the first or second century of Christianity, it's reared its ugly head again today, but this is evidence that Christ is on his way and could come at any moment. Amen. And of course, Paul said to Timothy, in the last days, perilous times shall come. And, and so, friends, we just say, we're not happy about that, but we want to be careful to be light reflectors into the darkness of this age for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, you understand why I bring Dr. John Wickham to these microphones when we have questions like this. Dr. John, you have done an excellent job of explaining this to us, helping us to focus on the Word of God, not on any discovery, no matter what it may seem like. But the Word of God is the absolute, so we so appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I'm sure we'll have other questions down the way for you. We'll talk again soon. Have a good day. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much. You know, every single time I talk with Dr. John Walvert, he hits the Ball out of the ballpark, a home run as he talks to us about the biblical evidence that Jesus Christ did not have a wife. He has one for the future. That's us. The church will be married to him one day after the rapture of the church. Wow, that is exciting. Looking forward to that time. You may want to re-listen to the conversation I had with John, give you some information, help you to have a uh, you know, a basis upon which to talk to your friends when they say, hey, what about Jesus? Did he have a wife or not? Well, that's at our website, prophecytoday.com, P-T-R-N, the place to go. Well, it is again that time of the year when the Jewish feasts are unfolding. Last week, we saw Rosh Hashanah. Actually, it was last uh, Sunday night. It began all day Monday, and then they have it two days in a row in Jerusalem, so that was Monday and Tuesday. Upcoming next week will be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So I bring to these microphones the National Director of Friends of Israel, Steve Herzig. We're going to talk about it. Steve, thank you for joining us. Uh, I need to ask you about Yom Kippur. Uh, We basically know it was the day the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and he would pour the blood on the mercy seat. But when he did that on Yom Kippur in days past when the temple was standing in Jerusalem, did it take away sin from those Jewish people that were being honored or being covered there with that special sacrifice? It never took away sins, Jimmy, but it did It did cover them in the sense that uh, in obedience to God, he had access to him. Uh, there, it always even during the time of the law, it always was a personal decision to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in obedience, certainly the people were at the, at the edge surrounding the tabernacle or temple, uh, hoping that the blood sacrifice would be accepted by God. Now, since there is not a temple in Jerusalem, what are some of the traditions that the Jewish people are involved with in the days of awe. We are between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the ten days of awe. What do the Jewish people do during that time? Well, Jimmy, the name of the game from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is repentance. There is a strong desire to make things right with family, friends, associates. The idea of personal accountability is is critical. And, of course, this involves uh, people who are very religious and even people who are conscious of just their Jewish background, 
uh, there's this strong desire knowing that God is keeping inventory, and so there's this desire to recount what you've done over the past year, try to make those things right, because God keeps a count, according to tradition, of how many good deeds one does versus how many bad deeds one does, and there's a strong desire to have the good deeds outnumber the bad deeds so that the coming year would be a blessed and happy new year. And that's what the Jewish people, you're not talking about generally people uh, having their deeds, good or bad, weighed at the end. The Jewish people are thinking that through. Exactly. But when we think about Yom Kippur, it, it is a very solemn day. So how would we approach our Jewish neighbors and friends about uh, how we could present the Messiah to them? Well, I'll tell you, Jimmy, if a, if a believer acknowledges to their Jewish friend or acquaintance that they are simply aware of the holiday, uh, of the feast day, that, that's a positive thing in and of itself. By simply uh, telling them, Happy New Year, we know this is a, 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 a time of reflection. Uh, we're praying for Israel and for you, and I trust you have a great year, and may God grant you a wonderful year. Those kinds of things just really shock many Jewish people to think that somebody else outside their faith and people would know about it and then be able to demonstrate that with a wonderful greeting. That is a very good piece of advice. By the way, Shana Tova, that's Hebrew for Happy New Year, and that could be one of those terms that you might use when you go to your Jewish friends. Well, Steve, Shana Tova to you, and thank you so very much for joining us this time. Hey, Jimmy, I always love to come when you ask me to come for one of the feasts. Very interesting conversation with Steve Herzig. We're going to take a break and we come back. Rabbi Yoel Karen is going in-depth from a Jewish perspective on Yom Kippur and the days leading up those 10 awesome days. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Young here. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is our last half hour, and in the last eight minutes, we'll take a look at the book. I'm going to bring everything together that we've talked about with our broadcast partners, and we'll see how what we have been talking about basically fits into the end-time scenario that's found in God's Word. This is a special time. Hope you can stay tuned and listen to what we will be developing when we do take a look at the book. May I ask you to go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and answer our poll question. We talked with Steve Herzig about Yom Kippur in just a moment. We'll have Rabbi Yoel Karen go in-depth about this special holy time. Well, here's our poll question on our website, prophecytoday.com. It's on the left-hand column down near the bottom. Here's the question. Jesus Christ fulfilled all four of the spring Jewish feast days in the proper day sequences. He was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. That being the case, will Jesus Christ fulfill the three fall feasts, the last three of the seven feasts, as well in the proper day sequences? That's our poll question. Go there and answer the question, if you will. We'd appreciate it so very, very much. 
want to remind you also that we're going to take a tour this year of Israel, going over to Petra as well. You can find at our website, prophecytoday.com, information, all the times, the dates, the price, everything else about that tour. And we're going to take a cruise. We're going to go to Rome, Athens, Ephesus. It's going to be a wonderful time. Love to have you come along and go with us on that special tour and or cruise. Now coming up is a very interesting conversation that I want to have with Rabbi Yoel Karen. He's in the Jerusalem, Israel area. He has been so helpful for us on this broadcast to be able to explain to our listeners some of the intricate activities going on in preparations to build the next temple, but also the Jewish feast days. And we have upcoming Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a very solemn day as far as the Jewish people are concerned. I want to talk about a couple of other aspects surrounding Yom Kippur. Actually, the fall feast days. You start with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot. And I want to talk to the rabbi about that. Uh, Yoel, it's a great, always a neat opportunity for us to be able to get together with you. Thank you for being available. Thank you for having me. What about uh, the fact at Rosh Hashanah, and we've had already Rosh Hashanah, we're in the Ten Awesome Days, and I want to ask you about them, but Yom Kippur, of the seven Jewish feast days given to the Jewish people back in Leviticus chapter 23, this is the most solemn of all the days. In fact, basically, is it not the case that the only thing you do is simply have about a 25-hour fast? And then do you pray? Do you go to the synagogue? What? Yeah, absolutely. You, you do go to the synagogue, but the, the, the Torah commandment, the biblical command for that day, is the Bible tells us that, that this, this day will atone for you. It's atonement not only for the people, but for the sanctuary, for the temple itself. So we do go to the synagogue. You, we hold a solemn assembly. But the Torah commandment is to afflict your souls, and that we've always, from the earliest times, we've understood as a fast. And that's what we do. That's, that's the main thing of the day, is that fast. And we spend pretty much the entire day in the, in the synagogue without leaving. At least, at least that's, that's what I do. I know most people do also. There, there's a ceremony called the Vidui, where we go through and we confess all of our sins aloud. There's, again, Jewish prayer is always a communal aspect, and we will sit there and we'll go through everything. That we can that we can possibly think of that we've done through the year. We have certain portions that we read from the Torah, the the Haftarah, the additional portions from the prophets that's added to the Torah reading for that day is always appropriately enough the Book of Jonah, all about repentance and fasting and how an entire nation can be slated for destruction and they can totally repent and turn around and God can have mercy on them and and is uh, the sentence. Now, I have heard the phrase that uh, the Jewish people have used often, they want to be included in the Book of Life. What is that talking about? Is that a part of Yom Kippur, or would that take place during the Ten Awesome Days leading up to Yom Kippur? Absolutely. The, this, is, this is one of the, the main things. This starts actually at Rosh Hashanah, which Rosh Hashanah, we actually, one of the names for it, it's also called Yom Tu'ah. The, the, the day of trumpets, the day of blast. It's also called Yom Hadim, the day of judgment. We, what we do is we're prepared to be judged for the year as, as a nation and as individuals. And we ask God from Rosh Hashanah throughout all the way to Yom Kippur, we ask God every day, three times a day at least, to include us in his book of life. 
And we know this goes all the way back. We can see all the way back to Moses asking God, talking about inscribing in the book of life. And so we're begging and pleading and asking to be included in the book of life. And this, like I said, this is, this is every day all the way up until Yom Kippur. Uh, one of the, the, the beautiful songs that we sing on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur states, and as you sing several times over, that on Rosh Hashanah it is inscribed. And on Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And so this is, this is what we teach, is that the judgment takes place, but you've got time. There's always time. God is very long-suffering. He, doesn't want to, he always wants to give a person a chance to repent. And you have until Yom Kippur before the judgment is sealed finally. Talk to me and reflect from what you understand about the times when the temples were standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for those many years. How would the activities unfold that day? Tell me, the high priest, I understand, would take a number of mikvahs before he even, that one time in the year, would go behind the veil of the temple into the Holy of Holies. Talk to me about that. Yes, there were several different things because he'd be changing garments. He would have to purify himself several times because of doing, you have to realize that on that day, the Levites and the priests sort of took the day off. The high priest, the Kohen Gadol, did all of the day's work, all of the sacrifices, the cleaning of the menorah and the, and the rekindling of the lamps of the menorah and sacrifices and the incense and everything. This was normally distributed between many, many priests, many Kohanim. On Yom Kippur, the high priest does everything himself. He does all of the work. So once he comes and he sacrifices that bull for himself and his family and he's got the blood on his garments, He's eventually going to become impure, and he's going to have to remove those garments, and then he's going to have to put on new ones, and he has to purify himself before he puts on those new garments. So, yeah, there are several different purifications during that day because of him contracting, uh, having having dried blood on him and different things like that. So it's that that's pretty much the, the most significant thing of the temple service is that everything was done by the high priest that day. And and you're right. It was the one and only time that, that the high priest was allowed inside, and the entire nation was trembling in fear when he went inside in later times when he would go inside and offer his prayers you could hear it him his prayer booming and echoing throughout the uh, the sanctuary and so the people could hear it almost like a, a speaker being, being broadcast the people that were sitting outside the sanctuary could hear the prayer and whenever he would say god's name as as the people's sin grew greater the pre- the high priest did not like they didn't like to say the name of god out loud all that often because they they felt that the people were too at such a low level that they weren't even worthy of hearing it and so only on that day in in later temple times towards the end they would only he would only say the actual name of god that one day and it says when the people when the priests and the levites and the people heard it they would all fall on their face and exclaim blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever that's how they would answer instead of answering amen they would answer with that and uh, it was just, I mean, it had to have been a very, very awe-inspiring thing to see. They would always instruct him and encourage him to shorten his prayer when he was in there because they were very fearful for, for his life. And sometimes we have several accounts of priests who went in that had bought their the high priesthood by money or whatever, and they went in unworthy, they went in without proper intent, without the proper respect for God's name or for the sanctuary, and, and they died as a result. No one ever actually died inside. It was always after they had come out that something that they would, they would see. They'd been there several accounts of them being struck by angels, and then they would die later. 
Would that have been in the area of the time when Jesus was on the earth? I know that Herod the Great and some of the Edomians were buying the position of high priest, the descendants of Esau, and had paid for that opportunity. Is that the time you're talking about? Absolutely. That's the exact time period I'm speaking of. Now, I've heard a rumor, and maybe you can correct us, or I understood that they would even tie a rope, a thin rope to the foot of the high priest, because if he did die inside the Holy of Holies, nobody else would be allowed to go in. They would pull him out. Is there any truth to that at all? That's something that you know, I've heard my whole life, and I know I've heard it from a lot of Christians and a lot of Jews. And the source for this seems to be uh, a mystical work that, that was written in Europe sometime in the 13th century in Spain. It doesn't seem to have any, any sort of a source older than that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much stock in it. And as I say, from all of the, the rabbinic Talmudic evidence that we have from back during that time, no one ever actually died inside. It was always after they came out. There's absolutely no source for it. I've heard a golden chain was attached that he could be pulled out with, or a rope sometimes, or... But no, there's really no source for that. Talk to me about what goes on now. There is no temple for the last 2,000 years since 70 A.D. There has been no temple. Uh, What about the performance that the high priest was to do on Yom Kippur? What do the Jewish people now do in its stead? Right. What we do is we basically follow the pattern that, that King Solomon gave us when he dedicated the first temple. He gives an entire list of things and situations that can be, and he talks about where people sin, and they're carried away, and this place is destroyed, and all of these things, and he tells them to turn toward, if they will turn, if they'll repent, and they will turn toward this place. And we see this is the pattern that Daniel follows when he was when the temple was destroyed, and he was in exile in Babylon. He went to the window in his house that faced Jerusalem, and he turned to it three times daily and prayed. So that's what we have. That's what we're left with for right now until we decide to, to get up and, and fulfill God's word and rebuild his house. We now, have to turn toward it, and we have to say the same prayers and everything that would have been said that day. And without those sacrifices, really all we can do is read the exact descriptions of every word that was said, everything that was done, everything that the high priest did every sprinkle of blood on the curtain, and we sit there and we go through, word by word, everything that was done that day, and almost reenact it as if we are there. I heard also, and I've seen, I think, uh, some people uh, during those 10 days of awe leading up to Yom Kippur, going in the center of a crowd, cutting the head of a chicken off and then swinging the chicken over the head and splattering the blood. Is there any connection there? Is that... uh, Something that's tradition. Yeah, I mean, look, it's probably the only thing I can, can assume is this is something that is born out of a, a desire or a realization of the lack of, of the sacrifices, that they're not there, and they're trying to replace them with something. This, again, is something that came, uh, the source of it is totally unclear, but one of the first recorded mentions that we have of it says that it has to be stopped because it is a practice that is reminiscent of the way of the Amorites. So this is obviously something that in the very beginning was suspected to be related to some pagan practice that had somehow crept in to to Jewish folk custom, and it needed to be pushed out and done away with. But there are a lot of people that are still doing it. If I could push a button and make it go away tomorrow, I would. But unfortunately, it's still going on. I guess as I have listened to you the last couple of minutes, 
there seems to be an urgency. Now, you and I have discussed this before, the preparations to build the next temple. But when we think about Yom Kippur and no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that seems to be motivating an urgency to build that temple, does it not? Absolutely, because it's just like the discussions that we've had about Passover with no Passover lamb. The idea of, of Yom Kippur without a high priest that's performing all of the services and doing all of the required sacrifices with the, with the goat that's for God and the goat that's for the scapegoat and everything, I mean, this is really a joke. What we're doing is really a joke, and it's, and it's pathetic. It's a hollow, hollow shell and shadow of what it was meant to be. So your desire, along with true Jewish people that are eager to do what the Lord wants them to do, would be to have a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Absolutely. From, from your mouth to God's ears. Amen. <laughs> amen, amen, and amen. Well, Rabbi, you've been so kind to share some of the insights into Yom Kippur, thinking about the past as well as the present, and then looking into the future when that temple will stand on that Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. Hak uh, my dear friend, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Now, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in two minutes. I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand like Daniel where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298 or visit us at schoolofprophets.org the book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. You know, there are many current events that are happening today in our world that look very much like the geopolitical activities described by the ancient Jewish prophets and written down about 2,500 years ago. 
In fact, our broadcast partners on Prophecy Today weekend gave us the details behind the most recent of these headlines being reported throughout the world. For example, Bob McGinnis in Washington, D.C. talked to us about Syria, Egypt, and Libya and the key role that they are playing in the Middle East with this Muslim violence that's spreading throughout the entire Middle East. Bob also focused on Iran as they prepared for a nuclear war. David Dolan, covering the area of the Middle East from Jerusalem, talked to us about the Israeli Defense Force preparing for a regional war. He also said that Israel is on high security alert during the Jewish Holy Days. Dr. Rob Congdon reports for us on the European Union, and he talked on the program this weekend about the formation of a federation in the European Union while at the same time he told us that the economic crisis was indeed intensifying, but that may play into the formation of this federation. Dr. John Whitcomb, he's a great scholar of the Word of God, and he came to the microphone to deal with the accusation that Jesus Christ had a wife which came from a piece of papyrus about the 3rd century A.D., which talked about Jesus speaking of his wife. Steve Herzig, who is the National Director of Friends of Israel, introduced us to the Jewish Holy Day of Yom Kippur upcoming, and Rabbi Yoel Karen went in-depth from a Jewish perspective about this Holy Day of Yom Kippur. You know, these broadcast partners giving many details to us on the stories that we covered is so essential for you to have an understanding of how current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. By the way, you can listen to all of these reports on prophecytoday.com. That's our website. Go there to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and it will give you an opportunity to listen or re-listen to each of the interviews that I did on Prophecy Today weekend. And may I suggest that you call a friend and tell them about these very important interviews that we have on Prophecy Today each and every week with the information needed by each Christian to have the proper world view. However, today I want to look at the story of the Jewish feast and in particular the three fall feasts. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, we have listed all seven of the Jewish feasts that the Lord gave the Jewish people. There are four in the spring, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. In the fall, we have Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these are feasts that the Lord gave the Jewish people. They have an historic significance, also a agricultural significance, and what I want to look at is the prophetic significance of each of these seven Jewish feasts. Prophetically, on Passover 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was crucified. On unleavened bread, Jesus Christ was buried in the city of Jerusalem, and on first fruits, Christ resurrected from the dead. Then 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, and that is one of the Jewish feasts, the Holy Spirit came and baptized all new believers into the body of Christ, the church. All four of these spring Jewish feasts were fulfilled by Jesus Christ 
in the proper day sequence. Therefore, to be consistent, Jesus will fulfill the three fall feasts as well, also in the proper day sequences. He will return to the earth on the Feast of Trumpets. He'll walk into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the kingdom, that thousand-year kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule and reign from a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, will begin on the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me rehearse what I just said for you. Jesus Christ will come back to the earth on the Feast of Trumpets. I'm not talking about the rapture. I know that Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, the trump of God will sound. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And we'll be caught up to meet Jesus Christ in the air. Now that's the rapture of the church. And the rapture is only for Christians. Remember, Gentiles and Jews, when they come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, become Christians. And those are the ones that will be caught up at the rapture of the church. I'm talking about the Jewish people and the return of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, back to the earth. You say, well, what about the trumpet sound? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31, you'll see that when Jesus Christ comes back to the city of Jerusalem, he'll turn to the angel and tell him to blow a trumpet, call a solemn assembly, bring the Jews from all corners of the earth and all of heaven back to the earth. And that then will be the beginning of what is going to be the kingdom period, which let me remind you, the kingdom is promised to the Jewish people. It's never promised to Christians. We'll be a part of it because you and I will be married to Jesus Christ, and indeed we will rule and reign with Christ from that temple on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ will come back, the second coming on the Feast of Trumpets. During that 10 days of awe, before Jesus Christ will fulfill Yom Kippur, he will rebuild the city of Jerusalem, he will lift up the Temple Mount, he will build a 21-story high temple, then he goes to the Jezreel Valley, the Battle of Armageddon, he goes across the Jordan Valley to Petra, gathers in those Jews protected there, comes by way of the mountain to the east, the Mount of Olives, comes through the eastern gate, walks into the Holy of Holies, and he is there on Yom Kippur. Remember, Hebrews chapter 9 says, once in the end of time, Jesus Christ will go into the Holy of Holies. Five days later, the kingdom begins from Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ will rule for the next 1,000 years. But let me remind you of something. Before all of this happens, before these last three fall Jewish feasts are fulfilled by Jesus Christ, the rapture takes place. Jesus shouts and calls us up to be with him in the heavenlies. And by the way, with everything we've talked about on this broadcast today, we'd have to recognize the rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.